within us to want to be great, there could be some very pure forms of that desire, and we all know there could be some really selfishly motivated forms of that desire for greatness. In our day, there is instant opportunity for greatness via social media. I was just Googling yesterday different musical artists that were found out on YouTube. I mean, this is overnight greatness for so many of them. Of course, there are different videos that go viral. There are followers we have on social media. Greatness is a question that confronts all of us in one way or another. Some of us have a greater drive and desire for it. Others of us want it maybe in smaller ways. But make no mistake about this, church family. God desires, according to his definition, for you to live lives of greatness. God God has a desire for you to excel in a great way according to the ways that Jesus defines greatness. And in a nutshell, true greatness is that God-centered focus in life that sacrifices for others to make much of Jesus. Greatness is a God-centered focus in life that seeks to serve other people and in so doing makes much of Jesus so that people see Jesus in us who love God as we serve other people. That's what Jesus says is true greatness. We're going to unpack that idea today and continue that definition of greatness. And we're going to find ourselves in the book of Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, looking at verses 30 through 41 today. I want you to think about, as you turn there in your Bibles to the book of Mark, which is towards the end of your Bible, about this idea of greatness and your perceptions of greatness. If you don't know the Bible, we have Bibles in the pews right in front of you. And we would love for you to keep that if you don't own one. We would love for a Bible to be in your possession. And so please take the one in front of you. It's our gift to you. Because through the Bible, God speaks to us as he's going to do this morning. We believe in faith. The Bible is God's word. And so here is what God's word tells us. In the book of Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 41, Jesus unpacks this matter of greatness by demonstrating how he himself is declared as great. Verse 30 They went up from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, He asked them, what were you discussing on the way here? But they kept silent. Can you say silent? For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. And John said to him, Teacher, 
We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. He say following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is God's word for us. Let's pray, church. Father in heaven, I thank you, God, for your word and for this timely word about greatness, God. God, we we are not simply insignificant people on the timeline of eternity. While, yes, Lord, we consider the billions of people on this earth right now and the scores of people throughout history, but, Lord, I pray that even in that moment that really makes us shrink and feel insignificant, that we would remember, Lord, that you have made us in your image, that you have bestowed upon us significance, and you have called us to greatness according to your design. So for the one who's here today that feels pretty down and out, Lord, I pray that they would see, Lord, that you have purposes far grander than what they've lived up to. And others who have been chasing after other ideas of greatness, spending their lives, investing their time, investing their money to things that, will, that are fleeting. God, I pray that you would give them a new focus. And Lord, today we ask that you would compel us with this definition of greatness grounded upon Jesus to give you glory. May that be true of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There are three kind of stories within this one section that we're going to be covering today. But they they fit together, uh, maybe not at first glance, but certainly at second. Jesus begins by making a prophecy to his disciples. It says in verse 30 that he went from there and passed through Galilee and did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples. He wanted a teachable moment with his followers. He wanted to pull them aside. And as we've seen throughout the story of Jesus' life, it was hard for him to get away. Oftentimes, the best ways for Jesus to get some privacy was by climbing a mountain, waking up at the crack of dawn, or getting on a boat and sitting in the middle of the sea. I mean, you think your life is hectic and chaotic. And so here, he's trying to get some alone time with his disciples because he wants to teach them. Never underestimate the value of teaching. Jesus didn't. Yes, Jesus did miracles, Yes, Jesus had many signs. Yes, Jesus did things that would make your jaw drop. But he knew he needed to instruct his disciples, shape their minds, help them see God's mission. And he wanted to get alone with them. And he had a message for them that they clearly did not want to receive or didn't know how to receive. Because in verse 31, he was teaching his disciples, and he gives them this statement referring to the Son of Man, which is kind of code name for him speaking of himself. Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Now, now this isn't the first time Jesus gives them a sneak peek, a trailer to the, to, to the movie that's about to unfold. 
And he's telling them, I'm going to be delivered. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. I'll be put in a tomb, and I'll rise from the dead. But perhaps by saying the Son of Man is going to do this, they weren't quite clear, even though Jesus had told people, hey, I'm the Son of Man. But using that language, it kind of distanced himself somewhat, and the disciples were unsure of what he was talking about. Maybe they were not liking the idea of their teacher dying, being killed. And so it says here in verse 32, they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. I was wondering, why were they afraid to ask Jesus? You look a couple chapters earlier, Jesus makes a similar prediction about his death. And you remember, Peter says, Jesus, that's not going to happen to you. And you know what Jesus tells him? He says, get behind me, Satan, because you have set your things not on God, but on man. So I'm imagining the disciples are here like, hey, that, that didn't work out for Peter too well last time. Let's just keep our mouths shut. All right, we'll just try to figure this thing out. Because last time that happened, Peter was called Satan. And, I, you know. and so, so here Jesus makes this prophecy, and the disciples don't know what to do with it. But, but instead of really investigating it, they have an argument. And not an argument of, man, this is really sad. Jesus is going to get killed. Is this, is this true? Is this really what he's saying? But, but they have something altogether different. See, in verse 33, they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way here? You know that when we were getting away, that teachable moment I was getting with you after I finished my lesson, I was walking ahead, and I could see you guys back there having a conversation. What, what were you talking about? And, and we see this in Jesus all the time. He doesn't ask questions to find out. He asks questions to draw out. And he wants them to make known their conversation. And you know, it's that moment where in class, you know, the teacher asks a question. Say, all right, who, who wants to answer that? And, and no one wants to answer. What do they do? They put their head down. Say, because if, if I make contact, they're going to ask me directly. You got, you've all used that before. So here Jesus is asking them a question. It says, verse 34, but they kept silent. They did the, the head down trick. They kept silent. Why? Well, because they didn't want to answer the question. Mark tells us, for on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Jesus' eyes are fixed upon the cross and crucifixion, and their eyes are fixed upon their fame and future. That's messed up. Jesus is telling them, I'm going to die. And they're saying, wow, that's sad. Which one of us is the greatest? And see, Jesus is patient with them. He, he, he doesn't rebuke them right away. He's trying to expose a lot of problems they have with their thinking. Problems about his mission. Problems about their identity. Problems about the greatest. What does it mean to be the greatest in God's economy? And so there Jesus is there asking them this question. And no one answered, but he knew the answer, which is why he gives them a response without them saying anything. He sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone will be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Jesus says, you want to know how to be the greatest? You got to die to yourself. You got to be last place. You got to excel at being the last you got to be the first at being the last. 
You've got to put your agenda to the side and become a servant of all. This is, this is rocking their worldview. Because the disciples had this misunderstanding about what Jesus had come to do. They thought that Jesus had come to this earth to establish a kingdom. And we've said this before. Here they are in a Roman-ruled land that God had initially given to them and King David. God gave King David a promise that one of his descendants would be a great leader, establish a kingdom there in Israel, and reign for eternity. Jesus comes on the scene doing great miracles, teaching like no one's ever taught. He says, I am the Christ. And they're like, all right, the kingdom is coming. Now, could we be some of your leaders in that, 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 that uh, kingship you've got there? I, I'll, even, I'll even be one of your right-hand men. I'll be a chef in your team. Whatever it is, Jesus, we, we want to serve with you in this great kingdom. But they wanted to become greatest. They wanted to know which was greatest. And maybe that question came because earlier in this chapter, Jesus took three of them up on a mountain with him, Peter, James, and John. And maybe they were starting to think, like, hey, we're, we're, we're pretty exclusive here. You know, we were with Jesus. And maybe the other disciples saw that and think, like, man, what's up with that? And so now there's a question of greatness that's transpiring, and Jesus is saying, you've got it all wrong. Yes, I'm the one that you've been waiting for. Yes, I'm the one who's going to establish a kingdom, but no, I'm not going to do it like that now. Right now, you're called to serve. You're called to be in last place. You're called to lay aside your agenda to serve other people. This is a worldview-shaking kind of moment. When we misunderstand greatness, we misunderstand the way we see our lives. If we think greatness is propelling ourselves over other people, seeing people as stepping stones for our own advantage, we're seeing life through an outlook that is contradictory from the one that Jesus taught That is not greatness. To drive home his point, Jesus takes a child and puts him in the midst of them and takes this child and puts him in his arms. That's a tender moment right there. The son of God taking a child in his arms. Now this is significant because in our day and age, our culture, our society revolves a lot around children. Sometimes to our detriment. Kids call the shots in many of our homes. Kids are, are, they dictate our schedules. Life becomes chaotic because of our children. But on the opposite extreme, in the ancient Near Eastern culture, children were very um, low class. They weren't prized. Sometimes because of the infant mortality rates, people just didn't hold on to them. And so it wasn't until they entered adulthood that they began to really take on some significance. That was true of children, but it was also true of women in a patriarchal society. The the Bible constantly is breaking that mold. The first witnesses to see Jesus' resurrection were not men, but women. And here Jesus takes a seemingly insignificant child, puts him in in their midst, picks him up, holds him in his arms, and saying this, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, 
And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. This is not a lesson about the child's demeanor. This is not a lesson about the that the child's way of doing things, a childlike faith or anything like that. No, this is a lesson of Jesus, the greatest of all, reaching down to the lowliest of all to love. And Jesus saying, see what I'm doing? That's what you got to do. You want to be great? You've got to be a servant. Servants wash feet. Servants serve people. Servants respond to other people. Servants look out for others. Jesus is saying, that's how I'm defining greatness. Jesus goes so far to say, as you serve a child, it's as if you serve me. And if if you're serving me, you're serving my heavenly Father who sent me. Jesus leaves no space for arrogance, selfish ambition, self-propagating kinds of mindsets. But what I love about Jesus is we could say talk is cheap for a lot of people, but it wasn't for him. See, remember how the story began? It began with Jesus saying that he's going to die. It didn't begin with Jesus saying, hey, I'm going to set up a kingdom. I'm going to be the hot stuff around here. No, Jesus saying, I am king, yes, but I'm going to demonstrate that by laying down my life for you. Yes, Jesus did many great things in his lifetime. He preached the greatest sermon ever, Matthew 5 through 7. He raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11. He made storms stop, the sightless sea, the lame leap. He turned water to wine. Bondage was broken. The lifeless live. But Jesus, at his greatest, is what we find when he Humble God left his throne, went into a manger where he was born of a woman, took on flesh, and took on a cross. The greatest of all became a servant of all. I love how Paul says in Philippians 2, he's telling the church to follow after Jesus. He says, let each of you look not only to his own interest, that's selfish ambition, That's a world's ideas of greatness, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Jesus demonstrated greatness when he laid down his life to save us. This is what Jesus does here. He tells them, you want to know about being great, you got to be ready to lay down your life. Jesus' definition of greatness does a number of things. It exposes some things in our hearts, and it frees us in other ways of our lives. First of all, it exposes our pride, our pride. If you're like me, it's hard to not want to advance your own name, your own reputation, your own agenda. It's hard to not want lots of followers on Snapchat or Instagram. It's hard to not want to be known as a certain kind of person. 
But so much of that is rooted in ourselves, in pride, in selfish ambition. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. Lay that aside. That's not what following me is about. So the first thing Jesus' definition of greatness does, it exposes our own pride. But on the flip side, it frees us from this kind of performance-based pursuits. If we want to pursue greatness as our world defines it, by our wealth, by our followers, by our possessions, by our degrees, we will find ourselves pursuing thin air. Yes, you can attain degrees. Yes, you can get a good job that pays well. But you know, as well as I know, when you get one, you want more. Because our world defines greatness in such a way that cannot be attained. And so we live this performance-based life. And when we pursue that definition and we don't attain it, our lives are then filled with misery. We're frustrated. Man, I should have a better job by now. I should be owning that house by now. I should be driving that car by now. I should have those degrees behind my name by now. And go on and on and on. And this is performance-based guilt then we start living under because of a wrong definition of greatness. Jesus' definition frees us from that kind of performance. You know, it also frees us, thirdly, from pursuing the acceptance of others. And this is, this is something that's a little more subtle, but I want you to catch on to this. Because I know there's some of you who are saying, look, look, I like my simple life. I like where I live. I like my job. I'm not wanting all those big flashy things. But there are things in our hearts that pursue a kind of greatness that maybe we're not even aware of. I mentioned social media. There are times, even in social media, you might post a picture, let's say on Instagram. And if you get like three of those little red hearts, those little likes, you're kind of like, oh, that, that, that picture wasn't liked too much. But if you post a picture and you open your phone and there's like 75 people like it, you get 30 comments, how do you feel? Oh, you feel great about yourself. Like, I have achieved greatness today. In the most subtle of ways, sometimes our identity is bound up on how people perceive us, and that's a sign of seeking greatness. And so it might not be the big house, the flashy car, but sometimes it's just perception. See, Jesus' definition of greatness frees you from that. Don't let people define your greatness. Jesus says true greatness is that God-centered focus in life that sacrifices for others in order to exalt Jesus. That's the kind of greatness God wants for your life. That kind of greatness is what God has designed you for. To lay down your life to elevate Jesus's. There is a kind of freedom, a kind of joy, and a kind of satisfaction that comes when we embrace that definition. Well, the disciples are still on their journey. They haven't arrived on their understanding. Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him on that mountain. We've seen Peter mess up already when Jesus said he was Satan. But before John could get any more prideful, John's about to put his foot in his mouth in verse 38. See, John said to Jesus, teacher, you won't believe this. 
We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Okay, that, that, that statement of there is loaded with incorrection. I'm sure John looked back on that moment and was like, man, what was I thinking? But see how Jesus is gracious with them? He, he knows they are being sanctified, which is to say that they're growing in their faith. God's, God's purging them of their old ways. Any of you guys on that journey with me? He, he's patient with us. He tells John, don't stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. You see, what John said was, Someone's casting out demons in your name, and we try to stop them. We try to stop this guy from helping someone out. You see, that that person over there was possessed by a demon. The great enemy of our soul was controlling his life. That guy went to go help him, but we tried to stop that guy. I mean, that's messed up. And the reason we tried to stop him, because he wasn't following, not you, Jesus. He wasn't following us. See, the disciples began in his mindset of, we're, we're kind of this elitism. And in order to follow Jesus, you got to come in line. And, and line starts behind us. And, and, and what John does here is this kind of stealthish selfishness. It, it's so subtle. You don't realize it. It's stealth. But it happens to us, doesn't it? We can see good things happening to people. We see God doing work. And maybe sometimes we're a little jealous because he didn't use us to do it. But here John learns an important lesson. And Jesus says, they're not against us. He's on our team. He's on our team. Don't fight for the ball. We're on the same team. Cheer one another on. Jesus says, he did it in my name. He works in my name. He's not going to turn from me because I'm at work through him. Jesus frees them of this idea. It reminded me of what we find in the book of Genesis, chapter 11, with the Tower of Babel. God told his people, after the flood of Noah, to multiply and spread throughout the earth and to, in order to make God's name great. Turn your Bible to Genesis 11, and you see the people of God at that moment saying, but that means we can't be in our little huddle anymore, God. Let's let's build a building. And it says, in order to make a great name for ourselves. They were opposing God's global mission in order to preserve their little thing. And so that's what John is doing here. He is hindering God's mission because of his selfish ambition and his skewed ideas of greatness. Sometimes, if we live life according to our uh, different ideas of greatness that are not according to God's word, you will find yourself actually opposing God's plans rather than working with them. God forbid we do that. True greatness is that God-centered focus in life that sacrifices for others 
in order to elevate Jesus. How do we sacrifice for others? Well, it's by putting their needs above our own. Jesus says it's as subtle or as little in verse 41 as giving a cup of water to someone who's thirsty. See, what Jesus calls his followers to do, what he calls you to do, what he calls me to do, is to give of ourselves to bless other people. Now, it's not just a simple good works for good works sake, though. Listen here. Jesus did this. He demonstrated this for us. When he went to the cross, he became a servant to bring his name glory. See, when Jesus went to the cross, he took your sin and my sin upon his shoulders, as we sang earlier today. See, we're sinful people. We know the selfish ambition in our hearts. We relate to the disciples. We had those conversations sometimes we wish God didn't hear. We start hindering his work because we're broken people. We're we're self-focused people. I'm not saying this to beat you up. I'm saying this to tell you the truth. Because until we understand our brokenness and our need, we can't understand God's solution and resolution for our lives. See, what Jesus says, I know you're messed up. I know you're a broken person. I know you're a sinful person. That's why I came. That's why I was betrayed and delivered to these leaders to be crucified. So that on the cross, I took your sin all the punishment you deserve for your rebellion against the holy God. I took that upon me. And at the cross, God's wrath was poured on me in order for it to not be poured on you. Jesus rose from the dead, the servant of all, to conquer sin and death for us. And because of that, he is exalted and glorified and worthy to be praised and worshipped. We serve other people. We love radically, not just to be moral people. We do it because we want people to see a God who forgives sins when we put our faith in him and repent of our sin and turn from it. See, we want to work for God's glory. We want to do things so that people see God at work in us and they would come to know this Jesus who is the servant of all to be the savior of all who put their trust in him. That's the kind of greatness God wants for you. Man, that's the kind of greatness I want in my life. The kind that comes by dying to ourselves in order to exalt the name of Jesus. Church, let's get on board with God's mission. Let's not be confused in our society. Let's see the name of Jesus elevated because we took on God's design for what it means to be significant. Let's pray. Mighty God, we don't want to get it twisted, Lord. This world does not revolve around us. No. Our lives don't revolve around our schedules. Truth be told, God, our lives ought to revolve around you. And so, Lord, we we know there are so many things pulling at us in life. And so, God, I pray that we would truly seek to excel in all that we do in order that your name 
would be magnified in our lives. So be it at the workplace, God, when we excel there, may it be in such a way that points people to you through our testimony. When we excel as businesswomen, businessmen, educators, artists, parents, students, God, may it all be for your glory. God, teach us to serve other people. Teach us to not be self-focused. Teach us to not hinder your mission. Teach us to get on board with what you're doing. So, Lord, help us to that end. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for patiently enduring with our foolishness. Thank you for showing us loving kindness. Thank you, God, for giving us a great mission that makes a difference for eternity. Lord, for those who are here today who don't know you, God, for those who are here today who may have been maybe been living this kind of rat race and are just frustrated. They're tired of running toward a goal that they can never see. Tired of trying to achieve but finding themselves falling short. Tired of achieving what they've wanted only to see that there are 10 more things ahead of them. Father, for those who've found their acceptance of what other people think of them, they feel great because of likes and followers, God, give us a new focus. Free us from that performance-based living. Free us from our pride. God, may we experience true liberation from our sin, from our own agendas, in order to do your work. Oh, Jesus, we love you, and we thank you for being our great example in this way. We exalt your name this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.